0: Why we have questions Are you talking about the rest of the questions? No, we didn't. you the rest of the thank you the I know. I Ok, let's uh, start please. Um, I was made aware now that we didn't cover colorectal cancer the other day. Ok, this is not a very difficult. This is a topic that is, uh, we could say, uh, there are uh, three clinical presentations that we have to be aware of. And those presentations will depend on the location and, of course, the size of the tumor and if there are metastases or not, okay? But for colorectal cancer, it's important to know that it's a common disease. It's undiagnosed in many patients. Some patients are treated because of constipation or some other troubles. And there are risk factors. Okay, one very important is family history, first degree relative. However, notice that 25% of the cases don't have a family history. It doesn't mean that they don't actually have. Okay, but they is not or was not diagnosed. Okay, there are some hereditary syndromes. For example, Lynch syndrome that predisposes to many different types of cancers. There is a problem, a mutation in the DNA, so that uh, doesn't allow the repair of the damage. So mutations, so cells continue to progress in the cell, cell cycle, cycle, even having uh, severe mutations that accumulate. And familial, familial aden- adenomatous polyposis (FAP) there is a gene that is the APC gene, adenomatous polyposis coli. Polyp- okay, these people are diagnosed with uh, thousands of polyps being very young and the only treatment for them is to remove the entire colon they have to live their entire life without colon and also remember inflammatory bowel disease and other chronic diseases, diabetes or or some risk factors like smoking, obesity, etc Uh, alcohol intake predisposed to colon cancer and there you have some protective factors OK, it doesn't mean that if we do this, we are not going to get colon cancer, but we are less likely. OK, it doesn't help anyone to have a good diet and having some physical activity. The low-dose low aspirin only is indicated for other reasons. OK, we shouldn't prescribe something that the patients don't actually need. I remember many years ago, I read a great study about a uh, the baby aspirin that uh, studies suggested uh, that every, everyone should take to prevent cardiovascular disease. And, oh, oh, this is good. I started taking, it doesn't hurt, 81 milligrams. So in a week or so, I started having epistaxis, daily epistaxis, so no more aspirin, okay? So, all indicated. So, regarding the pathogenesis, As in many other cancers, there has to be an accumulation of mutations, okay, every time more severe, more severe, until the cells, the cancer cells, start avoiding destruction. They develop uh, proteins that protect them against the immune system, so they are not recognized. Okay, they evade the substances that inhibit growth. They have genomic instability because of these uh, inactivation of some of the uh, checkpoints, uh, proteins that control the cell cycle uh, they don't rep- uh, re- repair the DNA when there is a damage. They develop immortality. For example they induce telomerase activity. Normal the telomerases are enzymes that protect the ends of the chromosome. okay when there is a replication of a cell it is very difficult to copy the ends of the chromosomes. Okay, so with time we are losing, the chromosomes have become shorter and shorter and shorter in every cell division. Well, these cancer cells induce the telomerase activity, okay, making or keeping the ends of the, the chromosomes very long, and they can be divided, uh, these cells can be dividing, dividing, dividing all the time. Okay, they have what we call aerobic glycolysis, that means they perform a glycolysis, okay, even in the presence of oxygen, so using lots of resources and producing lots of lactic acid. They promote inflammation in the area of the tumor. They secrete substances that lead to the formation of new blood vessels and okay, neovascularization. They are very resistant to cell death. They don't respond to apoptosis or necrosis signals and they uh, detach from the tissues where they originate, they enter the blood vessels, they are are able to, to leave the blood vessels and go to other tissues, and develop there some proteins to attach to those tissues. In this travel from one place of the body to another, sometimes they are protected by platelets. When they travel in the blood, they are surrounded by platelets, so the immune system cells are unable to recognize. Now this is a diagram. There are different pathways for the development of colon cancer. This is just one, the best known. Notice that from having a normal epithelium, there is a loss of function in some genes. Okay, adenomatous polyposis coli is one. Beta-catenin gene is activated. This beta-catenin is a gene that is normally only active in the embryos or in the early fetal life to produce many, many cells. Okay, so activation of these will lead to... Excessive growth of cells, forming different types of adenomas, which is the pre-malignant mission. Early, intermediate, late adenoma. Notice that there are more mutations in each of these steps until the cancers uh, become invasive cancers. Okay, every type of, of epithelial cancer will have a stage that is carcinoma inside. So we have malignant cells that haven't crossed the basement mem- membrane once they pass through the basement membrane, they are called invasive. At the beginning, when you see there are these carcinoma stage, it's called microinvasive. It's only present in the submucosa. But from the submucosa, it may, may reach blood vessels, lymphatics, and produce a local invasion of the organs around the area, lymph nodes, and also distant metastasis. Okay, so depending on the location and the size of the tumor, they are going to produce different signs and symptoms. For example, the mass will decrease the caliber of the, the, of the intestine. Okay, if this is occurring in the ascending colon, probably it's not going to produce too many symptoms, because the faeces in the ascending colon are very soft, they just came from the small intestine. Now, as the feces advance through the ascending column, transverse column, and enter the descending column and sigmoid, they become every time more solid. They have less water. So in the left column, in the descending column, masses tend to produce more obstruction. Okay, so mechanical bowel obstruction, they may have obstipation, which is no feces, no, no flatus, and also uh, nausea, vomiting. And if the tumors are located very near the anus, the distal rectum, they may produce thin stools, described as ribbon-like or pencil-like stools. Also, they may compress uh, structures in the abdominal cavity, ureters, or the stomach, producing, for example, a hydronephrosis, with loss, anorexia, er, er, early satiety. Sometimes they, uh, to the masses rupture, okay, or may damage the blood vessels. Okay, may form fistulae, may okay, lead to perforation. Fistulization may be to the vagina, to the bladder, to the skin. Okay, if there is invasion of the rectum, they may have tenesmus, hematochezia, rectal pain. Okay, sometimes the blood is not so obvious. Sometimes it's uh, fecal, uh, cold blood. And if there are metastases, of course, the manifestations of uh, the liver, the brain, lung, metastases, lymph nodes. OK, the blood vessels that the tumors make, this neovascularization, tend to be very weak, very fragile. So they break very easily. Sometimes they can have hematochesia, important bleeding, or simply occult bleeding. And if this has been for a long time, they may have iron deficiency. <laughs> Okay, then you have the presentations divided depending on the location. Okay, The right-sided to, uh, colon cancers tend to produce occult bleeding or melena, the dark stools, okay, the there. manifestations of anemia, and they produce also diarrhea, while the left-sided ones mm-hmm. are more likely to produce changes in bowel habits, okay, sometimes uh, diarrhea that alternates with constipation, okay, or simply uh, progressive constipation. constipation, okay, more red blood, more hematochezia, more colicky pain because of the obstruction, more distension. And the rectal cancer, which is very aggressive, tends to produce hematochezia, and is the one that is likely to produce these uh, ribbon-like or pencil thin stools, okay, more difficulty with defecation, tenesmus, flatulence, or sometimes incontinence. Okay, those are the, the topics about colon cancer. And we can proceed to the introduction to thank you for reminding me about to the endocrine introduction. This is just to refresh a little bit uh, things that you studied in the past, in the pre prereqs, about hormones. Important to we'll have them very clear before starting the pathophysiology. Okay, hormones are chemical messengers. The classification of a substance, if it's a hormone, if, if it's a neurotransmitter, if it's a paracrine, uh, etc., cetera, is sometimes blurry. Okay, there are substances that can be several things at the same time when depending on how they are acting ok, but the definition is a substance that is, is made in endocrine glands or endocrine tissues, ok, uh, or organs that have an endocrine function o- almost every organ in the body has, has endocrine function ok, that are released into the bloodstream and act in distant organs sometimes not so distant, but in other organs Okay, these organs, where they act, are called the target organs, Are organs that have receptors that are specific for that substance. Okay, and there is an action that they will perform there. Okay, they will either stimulate some activity or inhibit some activity or regulate in some way the activity by doing modifications in the, uh, for example, the rate of the transcription of different genes Okay, the rate of production of different proteins. Okay, so it's uh, essential before starting the endocrinology to have clear how hormones behave depending on their chemical structure. Okay, hormones can be divided into fat soluble, lipid soluble hormones, and water soluble hormones. Okay, these uh, chemical characteristics are important for different reasons. One is, for example, lipid-soluble hormones need to be transported in the blood bound to a protein, for example, albumin, or different specific uh, transporters, for example, androgen binding globulin, or other specific uh, proteins. But albumin is a very important transporter for many of these lipid soluble hormones. Now, when fat soluble or lipid soluble hormones reach their tissues, the the target tissues, notice there on the left side how they they enter freely through the cell membrane. They are lipid, so they are welcome in a membrane that is lipidic. Okay, and when they are inside the cells, they are going to bind to intracellular receptors. Sometimes the receptors are in the cytoplasm, but they may be also in the nucleus. Okay, this complex between the receptor and the hormone is going to bind to the DNA, and it's going to initiate the transcription of certain uh, genes inside the nucleus. For the water soluble, the action is different. Notice that they bind to cell membrane receptors and then they activate second messengers. There are different pathways of second messengers inside the cells. Second messenger may activate another protein. This other protein will induce enzymes and will <coughs> add phosphate <laughs> groups or other chemicals to other enzymes, like a cascade. And at the end, we're going to have the cellular response. Okay, But that is important, the difference between uh, fat soluble and water-soluble hormones, as it is the regulation that we are going to be seeing. Here you have the classification, uh, according to the chemical structure and solubility. Okay, uh, notice that there are some uh, important exceptions there, uh, not all the steroids, uh, or sorry, not all the, 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 the peptides, for example. Uh, are water soluble, or uh, uh, so it's not a synonym being a peptide of being uh, water soluble. Chemical, chemically speaking, hormones are classified as peptides, steroids, or amines, which are made of a single amino acid. Okay, peptides are many of the hormones in the body insulin, growth hormone, and many others. Steroids are the group that that is easier to remember, are the ones that are made from cholesterol. Sex steroids, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone. And also we have the hormones hormones from from the adrenal cortex, cortisol, aldosterone, and vitamin D, which is also a hormone that is made from cholesterol. We consider it as a vitamin, because it was initially classified as a vitamin, but it's a hormone. Notice that uh, in the name of the, the hormones, hormones, you have hidden, okay, some uh, somehow the word steroid, cholesterol, steroid. Okay, uh, for example, vitamin D, colecalciferol, colecalciferol, cortisol, cortex, cortisol, aldosterone has the name steroid, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone. So it's, uh, these steroids are easy—the the easiest one to identify. So once you know that this hormone is not a steroid, it can be either a peptide or an amine. So which are the amines? Remember the catecholamines. Okay, epinephrine, norepinephrine. And there is only one that uh, we have to remember that, that is uh, made of a single amino acid. That is thyroxine. Okay, so all of these peptides and amines, all of them are water soluble. There is only one exception. That is thyroid hormone. But okay, when you go to the other list, classification according to solubility, notice that you have there steroids, the entire list, and thyroxine. Okay, there is a chemical modification of this thyroxine in the Golgi that makes it water insoluble, so it has to be transported bound to a protein TBG thyroid binding globulin, that transports in a, the blood, and we also bound to albumin so it has also a specific protein. Now the rest of the hormones are hydrophilic, okay they must bind to membrane receptors to initiate their action while the lipophilic, steroid and thyroid hormone, they can pass freely through the cell membranes and act, okay, and perform its action. Now, there is another uh, classification there, tropic, non-tropic, okay? And this concept has to do with the steps that the hormones have to perform their specific action. For example, the anterior pituitary hormones, have a subclassification of tropic if they signal the release of another hormone. Example, ACTH, stimulating the release of cortisol. TSH, stimulating the release of thyroid hormone. LH, for example, stimulating the release of testosterone. Those are tropic hormones. But they are non-tropic when they they stimulate exocrine glands, for example, prolactin. So lactin stimulates the release of breast milk, okay, not the release of another hormone. And there are two hormones that are made in the brain, okay, they are classified as neurohormones. These are oxytocin and vasopressin, or ADH. Remember, they are made in the hypothalamus and stored in the posterior pituitary, okay, that's why they are called neurohormones. Now, the regulation is important to to later understand diseases. To be able to succeed in endocrinology, um, it's important to master the medical terminology. The names tell you a lot about the hormone. To know where the hormones are made and where they go, what they do there. And in some cases, it's important to understand the interactions that need to occur between the different hormones. Okay, so going back to these negative feedback mechanisms is essential. Okay, in most cases, they're regulated by a negative feedback mechanism. Okay, and understanding this this is the first step, okay, to understand understand very well the conditions associated with endocrine regulation. Now, um, besides the negative feedback, okay, it's important to understand to that some hormones are produced constantly okay, at different rates during the day. For example, cortisol is produced uh, at a very, very high, high rate during, during the morning, and the rate decreases during the day. Okay, by the end of the day, we, we are supposed to have very low levels of cortisol. If we don't, it's going to be very difficult for us to go to sleep. Okay, because melatonin in our brain is not going to be produced unless cortisol is low. Okay, so difficulty sleeping, stress. Find that uh, those associations. Now, some hormones, for example, hypothalamic, are produced in a pulsatile way. Okay, maybe not always. Okay, the classic example is gonadotropin-releasing hormone from the hypothalamus. Before the puberty, it is produced in a constant way, very low-level baseline, same amount always. After puberty, it starts producing peaks. And these pulsations are the ones that stimulate the pulsations of LH and FSH in the pituitary that are going to also start being produced in a pulsatal way. Okay. And that leads to the menstrual cycle in women. Okay, if we use some contraceptive medications, what we do is simply inhibit the pulsations to avoid the ovulation. Okay, so that's a way of regulating the menstrual cycle. Now here we have some of these okay. negative feedback mechanisms. There are different types, short loops, long loops, you have, for example, on the left side, okay, an endocrine cell stimulating the target endocrine cell, producing, and that endocrine cell stimulates a tissue to produce some effects. Okay, so a hormone that we call A will stimulate the release of a hormone that is called B, and makes an effect. And the hormone B makes a negative feedback on the first gland. Okay, on the center, you have the example of positive feedback. Classic example is during ovulation. Okay, Okay. an endocrine cell produces a hormone A. Another cell produces a hormone B that makes a positive feedback on the first gland, stimulating more release of that hormone. Okay, hormone A, okay, Uh, could be LH, hormone B could be estrogen. And at certain point during the menstrual cycle, more LH is produced to induce ovulation. And then we have this complex multi-level uh, example in which the hypothalamus is also included. Okay. Notice that uh, if we take, for example, the first diagram to the left, and we simply add the hypothalamus, we make this complex multi-level there. Okay, hypothalamus typically produces a releasing factor or releasing hormone that stimulates the anterior pituitary to produce a hormone, okay, and then that pituitary hormone stimulates another endocrine gland to produce a hormone, okay, notice that the final hormone inhibits both the pituitary and the hypothalamus, while the pituitary hormone inhibits the Hypothalamus. So there are different ways of regulation. Not only these regulations. Okay, we are gonna try to, to understand, understand uh, the different types of regulation that are divided into neural, humoral, or hormonal pathways. Okay, understanding this is essential to later understand the difference between primary, secondary, tertiary disorders. Okay, how we interpret those terms. Okay, example of a neural regulation, we have only one very specific that is the release of catecholamine from the adrenal medulla. Okay, the adrenal medulla is like a ganglion of the sympathetic system. Okay, but typically ganglia Okay, release in, in the ganglia of the sympathetic nervous system, we release neurotransmitters that will bind, okay, or will act on a post neuron. Okay, in the, all the, the, the branches of the sympathetic nerves. Now, the adrenal medulla is a ganglion, ganglion that doesn't, doesn't have a post-synaptic neuron. Simply releases the epinephrine into, into the, the bloodstream. That's why epinephrine in that case is considered a hormone instead of a neurotransmitter, because it's not released in a synapses. Goes to the blood. Okay, Every time we need this release of epinephrine, okay, it's going to be a signal from sympathetic centers in the brain when we are under stress. Okay, That signal is going to reach immediately the adrenal medulla, and epinephrine is going to be produced. We don't need to wait for the hypothalamus to send a signal to the pituitary, and the pituitary sends some hormones in the blood. Okay, that's something that occurs during emergencies. Now, hormonal regulation. Okay, we saw some examples in in the loops that we showed before. Okay, there is a hormone that induces another, and another that induces another, and then there is a negative feedback. All the hormones that participate in the hypothalamus pituitary axis can work by this hormonal regulation. Okay, understanding this axis is important. Okay, there are basically three. One is the hypothalamus pituitary thyroid axis. Then we have the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis and the hypothalamus pituitary gonadal axis. Okay, so in every case you have a releasing hormone from the hypothalamus corticotropin releasing hormone, thyroid releasing hormone, gonadotropic releasing hormone, that stimulates a hormone from the pituitary, ACTH, TSH, FSH-LH, and those are going to act on endocrine glands to produce thyroid hormone, to produce cortisol, and to produce testosterone, estrogens, etc. And the humoral, Remember, humor means uh, fluid. Okay, is when an endocrine gland is, is stimulated by a it. change in the composition of the extracellular fluid. Classic, Classic example: blood sugar levels. Sugar levels high are high, so we are, are going to have insulin. Blood sugar levels are low, low. we are going to have glucagon release. Another example is calcium in the regulation in the parathyroid. Okay. Low calcium levels, we are gonna produce PTH. High calcium levels, no pTH, calcitonin is gonna be released. Okay, another example, ADH released in response to changes in the osmolarity of the blood. Very high sodium, we produce ADH to reabsorb water and decrease the sodium levels. Okay, another example when there is the, the activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Responding to pressure, responding, responding to, to osmolarity, to the delivery of sodium, sodium to the distal tubule in the kidney. Okay, so very important to remember that. Okay, when we study the, what is a primary disorder, what is a secondary disorder, we are going to be going back to these mechanisms of hormonal regulation, humoral hormonal because the classification of primary, secondary, tertiary, okay, is uh, different depending on if we, we are, are talking about hormonal or humoral regulation. There you have the diagram with all the things that we were mentioning about these different types of hormonal, humoral, neural regulation and some examples of it. Now, another uh, thing that is necessary to understand before starting the study of diseases, what happens at the level of the receptors? Okay, The receptors have a very, very important role. For example, when there is a very elevated level of a hormone, and this applies also to medications that we give to the patients, Okay, the cells will down regulate the number of receptors that they are expressing. That's why sometimes we have, for example, you start treating a patient with SSRIs. You start giving some SSRI 10 milligrams daily. They do well for two months, three months, and then they start, I'm, oh, I'm feeling still, I'm feeling still not very well. You have to increase the dose because the cells down-regulate the receptors. Or when there are no levels of a hormone, there can be an up-regulation of the receptors. And these this changes is what explains why some people uh, have died of supposedly overdose of illegal drugs. Okay, there, uh, mind someone who's taking any illegal drug for several years. Okay, during those years, the neurons down-regulate the receptors. Many cells in the body down-regulate the receptors, so they need to take more and more and more of the of the drug. and They are doing fine. Then they decide, oh, I can continue this life. Let me go to a rehab center. And they spend three years without taking any kind of drug. During these three years, the receptors, well, there is no more drug. We can start overexpressing receptors. And one day they are in a party where they are in a situation and they consume the drug but not even, even half of what they were consuming before, and they died. Because now they have tons of receptors, and they are receiving, suddenly, these medic- these drugs. So off-regulation, down-regulation of the receptors. Another way of, of regulation is uh, because, for example, for thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone is regulated by the amount of TSH, TRH, TSH, that we produce. When thyroid hormone, hormone increases, There is a negative feedback. But there is another regulation for thyroid hormone that occurs at the tissue level. Okay? Because when we produce thyroid hormone in the the thyroid gland, we make most of the hormone that we make is T4, which is not very active. Now, this T4 has to be converted to T3. has to be activated. Okay? So depending on the metabolic conditions of the body, T4 may be converted to T3 or not. Okay, if we need to increase our metabolic activity, T4 is going to be converted to T3 and it's going to be activated But if we are not, uh, in no need of increasing the metabolism of the body, T4 is going to be converted to something that is called reverse T3 That is inactive And that's what happens, for example, when we are doing a diet for a long time Okay, the body needs, it says, I can't be spending energy, I can't be producing ATP because the energy reserves in the body are low. So I'm going to take this T4 and convert it to reverse T3, and this person is not going to lose weight. doesn't matter if they are fasting. Same thing happens during chronic diseases. Okay, that T4 is not activated. there you have the meaning of up regulation down regulation increasing decreasing now another uh, other important concepts are about the interaction between hormones okay permissiveness synergism antagonism okay for example um, the classic example of thyroid hormone the okay, thyroid hormone increases, remember, a thyroid hormone increases the activity of every cell. So when it reaches the sinoatrial the, the cymo- node, okay, it increases the number of receptors for catecholamines. You have heard in the past for sure that people with hyperthyroidism have tachycardia. Okay, It's not thyroid hormone the one that increases the heart rate. Okay, thyroid hormone increases the number of receptors for catecholamines so the person having the same amount of catecholamines as they had before, this catecholamine acts more on the cyanoidial node increasing the heart rate. Okay, the same thing happens, uh, for example, with uh, the actions between thyroid hormone and growth hormone. Okay, sometimes Kids are not growing very well, and we assess the levels of growth hormone and IGF-1 normal, but maybe they have hypothyroidism because thyroid hormone is the one that stimulates the production of receptors for IGF-1 in the growth plates, in the tissues. So they have to have both thyroid hormone and growth hormone in normal levels for properly growth. Antagonism is easy to understand. Insulin, glucagon, calcitonin, PTH, aldosterone, and atrial natriuretic peptide are examples. Synergism is when two hormones combine their stimuli. For example, follicle-stimulating hormone and testosterone necessary for uh, the action of the hormone. So there we have the organization of the hypothalamus pituitary axis. Um, What is important from here is to understand the differences between the anterior and posterior pituitary. These are glands that are totally different, and they have a totally different origin, embryologically speaking. The neurohypophysis, or posterior pituitary, is an extension of the brain. Contains nervous tissue, contains axons, while the anterior pituitary is glandular tissue. In the embryo, in the fetal life, it is made in the same area of the nasal cavity. Okay, so the same glands that produce mucus in the nasal cavity, they undergo a transformation and they travel back and this anterior pituitary or adeno hypothesis is attached to this posterior hypothesis that is like an extension of the brain forming what we know as the anterior pituitary okay this anterior pituitary has a very special type of circulation okay it's one of the portal systems in the body not confused with the portal system in the liver okay a portal circulation is when you have a network of capillaries that instead of draining in the general circulation veins, drains in another network of capillaries. For example, hypothalamic hormones are made in some nuclei of the hypothalamus. There is a network of capillaries there. And the blood that goes from there, instead of going to a vein, and from there to the general circulation, goes to a network of capillaries that is in the anterior pituitary. So we have these releasing factors and inhibitory factors from the hypothalamus, reaching the pituitary through the blood and stimulating the release of some hormones there. On the contrary, on the posterior pituitary, there are simply axons from the neurons okay, in centers in the hypothalamus. So what we have done there is just the axon terminals okay, of those neurons. And from here, uh, well, you have there all the hormones made in the hypothalamus. Notice that in green you have the releasing hormones, which are stimulating. In red you have the inhibitory hormones. Okay, and in yellow or in orange you have ADH oxytocin. And also endorphins that are made there. And then you have the hormones that they stimulate or inhibit. Okay, probably the most important piece of information there is dopamine inhibits the release of prolactin. you want to keep only one piece of information there? Because the rest can be assumed just by using medical terminology. Okay. The hormone that we know as prolactin inhibitory hormone or inhibiting factor is dopamine. What stimulates prolactin? Prolactin Prolactin-releasing hormone and TRH. Why is that important? Because if someone has, for example, hypothyroidism, TRH is going to increase and TRH is going to stimulate prolactin. Prolactin is going to increase and you're going to see what's going to happen. Also, if someone is taking medications that inhibit dopamine receptors, we are inhibiting the receptors for dopamine in the pituitary. So we are releasing the break, and prolactin is going to increase. That's why patients taking antipsychotics may have hyperprolactinemia. OK, so if you want a piece of information to remember from there, that's the piece of information, regulation of prolactin. OK, and we are going to finish here.